Welcome back to the Georgia 2024 show. I am Mel Todd Wood. I'm on the road as usual, it seems these days, hopefully back in the studio soon. I got my co-host Bill Quinn. Welcome, Bill. Good afternoon. Hope travel's going well, Todd. Yeah, just uh, work constantly 24-7, but that's okay. So we have a, a, a rare and to go show today. Uh, we're going to break some news and dig into an issue that has been on all of Georgia's mind for some time now, which is election fraud in the great state of Georgia. Uh, we've got Joe Rossi, and we're going to dig into a lot of the issues surrounding this state election board. I'm going to hold off telling you more about that, but I think it's going to be explosive. We also sat down with Laura Loomer and also associated with Georgia, uh, Jenna Ellis, and what's behind the revelations that came out about that. And uh, we have a, a representative from Connecticut to talk about some of the problems in the GOP across the board, uh, across America, actually. So we are brought to you by the Georgia Record, georgiarecord.com. We need everybody to sign up for our no-ad subscriptions. We say this every time, but it's really helpful. Thank you for those who came in this week. It uh, really provides a base of operating revenue for us that we don't that we can hire more reporters and we can count on the income coming in. So it's 10 bucks a month and you get access to 13 sites across CDM with no ads. So that we know people uh, you know, complain about the pop-up ads on their phones or whatever, but we have to run ads because we have to make money. Uh, this is expensive and not free, so we need to cover our costs. So if you could go up to the top right of the Georgia record where it says subscribe for no ads, uh, you get access to all of CDM, uh, really global news with no advertisements, and people tell me they love it. So thank you for signing up. As well as that, uh, one of our main sponsors is David Cross. He is a financial advisor. And in these times, uh, you know, such swirling things, you've got the Fed pumping money into the economy to save Biden's election. You've got the Treasury doing the same. And uh, you've got elevated stocks that are probably overvalued at this point. Uh, so where do you put your money? What type of asset classes? You need a trusted advisor to help you guide you through that process because everybody's investment portfolio is different. And David Cross is that guy for us. Everybody knows David in Georgia. So, Bill, could you please run a quick ad for David? You bet. This is a special report. Knowing how to invest your money is harder than ever before. Dealing with stock market volatility, record debt, and terrorist attacks requires new thinking. At U.S. Asset Management, we can help you see the world more clearly so that you can move beyond the chaos and invest with confidence. Call us, visit us online, or drop by our office. U.S. Asset Management, helping you make better decisions with your money. So uh, David is a wealth of information. You're going to be seeing much more of him on CDM and the Georgia Record as we go forward. As far as our distribution, we really need to help grow the platform. If you could sign up for our Rumble channel, CDM1, sign up for our newsletters. And the podcast is out there. So I know a lot of, by the way, we had such a great feedback at uh, the Christmas parties of certain groups across Georgia. We had scores of people come up to us and say, thank you so much for the Georgia show. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Please don't stop. Keep up what you're doing. And so, um, you know, a lot of people don't have time to watch the video or whatever, but you, you can go and get the podcast, the Georgia 24 show and 2024 show, and you can listen to it in the car or wherever. So uh, please spread that around too. With that, Bill, why don't you introduce our first guest and I'm going to turn it over to you for this first part of this. Okay. Joseph Rossi, thank you for joining us today, my friend. Yes. Thanks for having me guys. You bet. You have, uh, you know, some folks know of your work so far. Um, You've been at this uh, trying to break through this election integrity uh, mess for going on three years now. So 
Um, I, I know we want to get to the meat of the conversation, but for folks that haven't met you before, just maybe give them a minute and a half of, of who, who is Joseph Rossi, please. Yeah, sure. So I, I'm retired from PepsiCo as an executive, PepsiCo and Frito-Lay. And by degree, I'm a chemical engineer. And in retirement, I teach at a local technical college, engineering, math, physics, uh, different science classes. And as you said, I started digging into the numbers because I, I like politics and I like numbers about three years ago. You know, a lot's happened in three years, and a lot of it is because of hard work by yourself, Kevin Monkla, and, and your team. So, um, one, thank you for that, even as we get going. So, um, you've given a name to your work recently, uh, and, and it's kind of fun. If I can bring that up, we'll share that with folks. Raffi Gate, <laughs> the errors, the lie, and the cover up. And yeah. uh, so, uh, I What's, I know you want to kind of go through this. I, I think today's session will focus heavily on the cover-up, but just to ground set, I'll let you take folks through the background uh, as we get going so they can kind of get a feeling of how this began how, and how you uh, how you came to be where things are today. Yeah, sure, Bill. So as I said, this started about three years ago, and I was pretty much a novice, didn't understand anything about batch tally sheets or the counting process, RLA hand audits. So I just started digging in and started trying to figure out what was going on. Um, but uh, the title here, Raffi Gate, the ears, the lie, the cover up, I thought, well, we got three years worth of work in into this. How do we put it into a phrase that's very easy to understand? And obviously the Secretary of State is at the tip of the spear here. And it involves some very questionable vote counting, which is why it's called Raffi Gate. And it involves three big parts. Uh, the errors, which we'll talk about, uh, indisputable at this point, vetted and confirmed. So um, we started working on, you know, the hand audit and Fulton County and found 36 errors. I think that's been covered numerous times, so I don't want to spend too much time there. Um, but what I would say is uh, we did establish credibility early on. And thanks to Governor Kemp and his team when um, for taking the time to listen to the 36 heirs. He's one of the few individuals in, in, uh, in government, along with my local state representative, Shaw Blackman, who really weren't passing judgment on um, the election, but just wanted them to validate the work that I was doing, that it was accurate. And fortunately, the governor's team took about six or eight weeks to vet those heirs and wrote that letter in November 21 uh, that basically got this thing rolling. So be it without that letter from the governor's team and the work they did. And to be honest, they did the work that Raffensperger's team should have done uh, a year prior to him doing the work. Um, but we do appreciate that. They got it going. And then uh, with, like you said, with Kevin's help, we dug into the second count, machine count two, which, you know, everybody says, well, that's the count you need to focus on, which is the certified count. And we found over 17,000 ballot uh, or votes counted that do not have a corresponding ballot images. We found over 3,000 votes counted multiple times. And that case also um, has a case investigation number 
for those that are listening, that one is SEB uh, 2023-25. The first one I mentioned with the 36 heirs is SEB uh, 2021-181. And then one more case we'll talk about. For, For the folks' clarity, an error in this case could be an error in batch counts and other things. So we're not talking about 36 ballots. We're talking about, you know, in many cases, dozens, maybe hundreds of ballots within an error. Is that that's that correct? Fair? And okay. those 36 errors that we found that were vetted by the governor's team is in, in his letter, if you read it, it says, Mr. Rossi's work is factual in nature. Those 36 errors um, tallied up to 4081, 4,081 false incremental absentee ballots counted for Biden that he shouldn't have gotten or shouldn't have received. And that was out of 148,000 absentee ballots that we looked at. So if you took 4081 divided by 148,000, that's a 2.7% error rate. So just keep in mind, we only looked at a subset of the votes in one of 159 counties with that effort. Right, and found a substantial fraction of the supposed deciding majority of the votes in one fell swoop, yeah. All right, uh, Did shall I move on to the next uh, screen? Yeah, so just real quickly on the lie. So I, I started oh, yeah. reporting a lot of this information to Mr. Sterling in as early as February of 21 and March of 21. And the first email that I have from him, he states that uh, we are 100% certain that ballots were not counted multiple times. And uh, that was kind of the first lie that came up. And eventually I got him to admit that there were errors, but he wouldn't do anything about it. And hence I ended up going to the governor's team. So um, the data was aired, it was posted on their website. It was touted by the secretary of state and his office as being accurate. And that's how I termed all of that data. And I have all the emails and receipts and everything that back all that up. But we went from the errors to the lie. And and then probably the most egregious part of this whole um, data inquiry or effort is the cover-up. Okay. Let's, uh, let me go on then. All right. All right. So there's a sequence of events here and the dates are very, very important. So you remember Governor Kemp's letter came out November 21st of 21. Uh, short, and that went to the Secretary of State's office. I think it went to the, well, I know it went to the SEB, and I believe it went to the Attorney General's office as well. But um, anyways, shortly after that letter came out, where Governor Kemp said two really important things. He said the 36 heirs noted by Mr. Rossi were factual in nature, And then he also said the RLA hand audit for Fulton County posted on the Secretary of State's website. That's really, really important because when when I was reviewing the letter with his chief counsel, David Dove, we kind of went back and forth. And I wanted to make sure that that part about being posted on the Secretary of State's website um, was was left in there because I wanted him to have some accountability in this as well as Fulton County. And it basically says that posted on the Secretary of State's website is sloppy, inconsistent, and doesn't build public confidence. So again, shortly after that letter, um, the gentleman I work 
was working on this with is attorney Jack James. And he's not my attorney. That's just his title. He's a personal friend of mine. But he got an unsolicited phone call from Ms. McGowan, who was the assistant attorney general at the time on December 4th. They exchanged messages a few times. Eventually, they connected on the 4th of December. And he tried, it was a strange call because he didn't know Charlene McGowan. And I don't know, if she. I guess she got his law office number and called him. Uh, but he transcribed, and you could see the quote there, the purpose of her call was apparently to convince me that the Secretary of State has no responsibility for the heirs. So an important point there is she's, again, admitting that these heirs exist. Um, but this is the beginning of trying to exonerate the Secretary of State's office of any accountability. And he basically refuted her and said, you know, I said, Mr. Rossi, and I believe the SOS has the ultimate responsibility. Thus, we disagree on the issue of responsibility. So Jack called me, um, you know, after he called and I said, that's really strange, Jack. I, why do you think she called and he told me that? And I said, well, I think we got the first crack in the armor. Um, you know, that call tells me that they admitted heirs and now they're in cover-up mode. And I wasn't, at that time, I didn't understand how big the cover-up was going to get, but it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. So the next important date was... December 16th of 2021. So post-Governor Kemp's letter, they opened up an investigation. That's the 181 case. And Mr. Zagorin and Mr. Braun came down to South Georgia or Middle Georgia and met with Jack and I. And we spent, oh goodness, three and a half hours. What seemed like was going to be a, a review of the data literally turned in. Jack told me afterwards, he felt like that turned into an interrogation. He's argued many cases, but Sounds like they were interrogating you. And the meeting started off with, I asked them how, how could we be sure they were going to be independent since they work for the Secretary of State. And they said in that meeting at the beginning that we are independent and we'll go wherever the data leads. But I could tell after an hour or two, Mr. Zagorin was getting frustrated because he couldn't refute the errors. And finally, he made this statement. He said, I think you're saying because it's on our website, note the change in pronoun, our is not a very independent term when you're referring to yourself along with the Secretary of State as our website. It's You're, you're saying because it's on our website, it's our responsibility. And obviously I refuted that and said, well, it's on your website, you're responsible for posting the errors to the public. So that was the second attempt then that trick or went off a light bulb went off a second time and said oh goodness not only is it the ag's office but now we got the investigators um basically admitting there were errors and we're going to blame this all on fulton county and try to begin this plan to cover up for the secretary of state of any responsibility so that's number two Okay, so then the hearing took place March 16th of 2022, and it had SEB 2021-181 on the agenda, the state election board hearing, that is. And Mr. Zagorin presented out all his data, and um, it was a thorough but long presentation. But at the end of that, he basically admitted there were errors and referred the case to the attorney general's office for further action. Further action. And subsequent to that meeting, the attorney generals 
office wrote a consent agreement or consent order that Fulton County had to sign and essentially turned into a little slap on the wrist for code violations for double and triple counting ballots and things like that. But the interesting third interesting item of the meeting is I was really focused on at this point, I knew the errors existed, but I was trying to get people to understand that there's an issue in the Secretary of State's office. This has gone on for a year. And even after it was pointed out to them, they simply refused to admit to the errors. So I started bringing up what I call the Sterling emails. I had a bunch of them. We went back and forth. And whenever I brought up one of those emails uh, referencing the Secretary of State, Mr. Mashburn, the then acting chair of the state election board basically shut me down. And this is one of his quotes from that meeting. He, after about the third time, he said, all right, Mr. Rossi, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to caution you again. And Fulton County is, is not, um, Fulton is the respondent. This is not a hearing about the secretary of state. And basically, um, you know, I thought, well, that's unusual. I got a lot of data on the Secretary of State's and it's certainly relevant to this case. So I, I got in a few items on the Secretary of State, but he was clearly um, bought into not letting the Secretary of State be brought up as having done anything wrong uh, with the air data posted on their website at this point. So after that meeting, um, I had a lot of phone calls from a lot of people, state legislatures, board members, et cetera, saying, what did you think about being shut down? And I thought, I, I'm, I'm new to this. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of unusual. I felt awkward and I sure wish I would have had a chance to provide some of the information I had on the Secretary of State office. And it was suggested to me, well, why don't you write an, an, another complaint specifically focused on your grievances against the Secretary of State. So Jack and I did that on March 21st of 22. And um, we basically filed it for some code violations for not not uh, catching the errors. And when they reported the errors to them, not taking them back to the county to get them fixed, et cetera. So that case is turned into a third number, which is SEBBI. 2023-0001. And the reason it's BI, it's unique in its nature in that it's a board inquiry into whether they have the authority to investigate the Secretary of State for code violations. And that is going to be discussed uh, at the Tuesday meeting and hopefully voted on by the board as to whether they're going to open up an official independent investigation against the Secretary of State. And I look forward to hearing that and hopefully a positive outcome moving forward on that. So one of the one of the cases has been continued and is no longer on the agenda, but the one you just got through describing actually still is on the agenda and it has a really a completely different number. It's it's them asking themselves, do we even have the authority to pursue something with Raffensperger? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly correct. That's actually the first case that comes up for discussion right after public commentary. Oh, interesting. All right. Shall I move on to the next right. uh, so, next date? So, so let me three. just get that. Let me just be clear. So they went from, am I correct, from invest possibly investigating Raffensburger to, well, can we even investigate Raffensburger? Is that 
Yeah, point. that's going to, um, Todd, that's going to show up on the next slide. They're actually, okay. let me show you what happened because okay. it, it went from investigating to getting shut down to do, can we investigate? Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, on August 6th, I get an email from Judge Duffy at 6.23 a.m. Sunday morning. And I kind of laughed and said he must really be troubled by this to send me an email that early on a Sunday morning. But I was glad he did, because in that email, I'll get back to the body of his email. But uh, probably the most important part of the email, he attaches an email from Charlene McGowan that she wrote to him on July 21st of 23. And now Charlene, that name came up when she was an assistant attorney general in her phone call to Jack James. Now she's uh, Raffensperger's attorney. So basically uh, in that email, she says and admits that Judge Duffy asked for a case to be opened on the Secretary of State for election code violations. As a matter of fact, she says here in the quote, uh, Judge Duffy, I understand that you have asked Sarah, she's the director of investigations, to open up a new case on Mr. Rossi's complaint against the Secretary of State's office regarding the posting of the county level RLA results for the 2020 presidential election. And then she goes on to um, put some data in there around why she felt the board did not have the authority to do that. Uh, well, she, she then says, I have instructed our investigation divisions that this office will not be opening up a case on this complaint. So she basically shut Judge Duffy's requested complaint investigation down. And then the very last sentence of her email says, I trust with this information that the board will inform Mr. Rossi that no case will be opened on this matter. And that, I don't know how Judge Duffy took it, um, but I, I took that as almost a, a threat down, a threat to him saying, you're not gonna move this any further. So the interesting thing came, um, I don't know if you have this uh, bill, the next, Duffy's body. Yeah, here it is. So in the body of the email that Duffy sent me, which had that attachment, his last sentence, he could have very easily said, Mr. Rossi, per this email, this case is shut down, right? Uh, but he didn't. And he said, we are evaluating our options on how we can proceed in this matter. So I interpreted that as he did not agree on her shutting down the case and wanted to dig into the question of authority further. So Joe, that, let me ask a interject here real quick. If, if the secretary, if let's just assume the secretary of the state's office is not acting faithfully in our elections, who, if this, if the state election board can't investigate that, who would be the investigating authority? Well, that's, that's been my argument to everyone. Is it, you know, if if they don't take up this case, then I guess there's Raffensperger's not held accountable for anything. Okay. That's why it's so important that they vote to move this forward. And again, I'm not asking them with this BI on the agenda of Monday, not asking them to rule on the merits of the case at this point on our complaint. Um, all we're asking is that they begin an independent investigation and then let the chips fall wherever they fall. Yep. It is fascinating that he was, I, I would, my interpretation of McGowan's note sounds like instruction to him. And yes. I, uh, from other venues, I understand judges don't usually like to get 
instruction. They believe that their their uh, jurisdiction is theirs. And it sounds like he was putting forth a position that, well, this is still an open option and we're looking at going to continue looking into it, which I bet <laughs> raised some hackles if it was known. Yeah. And it, and that's exactly how the rest of the board took it. Cause shortly after that, I got a, I was following up on it because judge Duffy resigned. I was following up with Mr. Mashburn on it. And I did eventually get a certified letter from him saying that, yeah, we understand, you know, what Judge Duffy told you, and we're taking this very seriously. Um, we, I think he said something like, we're in uncharted territories whereby uh, whether the board has authority or not. And at the end of that, he said, we have no time frame on this matter. So I bugged him quite a bit. And I said, well, I know you don't have a time frame, could, but you could, could at least put a number. Is it close? And he said, no. And I said, well, could you at least put a number on it? And they agreed they couldn't put an official number on it because it wasn't an investigation, but they put a BI number on it, and which is my understanding, the first of its kind. But at least it has a number that we, when we say something, we all know what we're, we're talking about. Yep. All right. Uh, let's see. And then, and then we move currently. Yeah, currently. So um, do you have the part on the uh, how the 25 was removed from the hearing? Do you have that on there? I don't remember if you have that. I could speak to it if you don't. Uh, the the uh, last one with the bullets? Yes, I think I do. Yeah, there it there. is. Okay. Yep. All right. So switching gears. So that's where the BI case stands. Tuesday, right after the public hearing, they're going to discuss it, hopefully vote on whether they have the authority. I provided them my input based on my chemical engineers research. I'm not an attorney, whether they have the authority, but I know other um, talented attorneys have chimed in and submitted information to the board as to why they do have the authority. So moving on to 25, which is the, um, the machine count two complaint where there's missing ballot images for votes counted and duplicate ballots. That was also on the agenda for Tuesday. And obviously it's an important case because it's the second counting effort. So we've already um, proved that the hand audit had errors and this one proves that the, um, our allegation it proves is that the machine count also has accounting errors or issues in it. So basically, you take those two counts and you have to ask yourself, you know, both counts orchestrated or led by the secretary of state are highly flawed, which is why this case is so important. So we were looking forward to that being on the agenda. You know, I myself took days off of work and other folks are coming in from out of town, but late on Friday afternoon, I got uh, an email from the paralegal um, basically that said this case was uh, being continued and would not be on the agenda. So somehow between um, the a week before the meeting, I know the board gets a package, each member, and they get to review the cases as they're going to be presented. So sometime between when they got that package and Friday afternoon, somebody either in the Secretary of State's office or the State Election Board 
decided to pull it from the agenda. And they had actually sent you a letter prior to all this saying it was going to be on the agenda. And when they issued the agenda, it was listed, wasn't it? Yes, it was actually listed. And good, that's a great question. That reminds me, it was not only listed, but it was listed in the third most serious category. There's a, a case can be presented to the board as um, no violations found. It could presented, be presented to the board as violations found um, with a recommendation for a letter of instruction to whoever the respondent is, which is a little slap on the wrist, or it could be presented to the board as violations found, and this needs to be referred to the attorney. It's serious enough, it needs to be referred to the attorney general's office for further action. So this one, that told me two things. One is it was it was a serious complaint. And the second thing was that they completed the complaint because I don't understand how you could complete it and categorize it as violations found if you didn't actually complete the complaint. So Joe, just to recap, you have serious evidence of election fraud or, or basically that it's very doubtful that Trump lost Georgia. And then you have the state election board refusing to hear the case and actively working to cover it up. And even they admitted that there was validity to the complaint. Is that approximately what you're saying? Well, I, I, I'm not going to rule on whether Biden won or Trump run. Yeah. All I can validate is that these two recount efforts wouldn't pass a simple accounting test. <laughs> and, um, and they were not looked into properly at this point. And where the numbers fall, if they ever get looked into properly, then I'll let them fall where they fall. But I can I can state that if this was an annual report for PepsiCo, it would it would not have been passed or signed off on by the CEO. And I I consider Raffensperger the CEO of elections. Well, it is interesting to note too that in cases where counties have tried to uh, assert their independent decision-making power, which is actually borne out in many statutes in, in Georgia, the Secretary of State's office, and Raffensperger in some cases personally, has pushed back on them, um, instructing them not to take independent action, and in some cases threatening sanctions, uh, fines in some cases. Um, I believe there's been you know threat of criminal charges to certain um, organizations in counties that wanted to do something different, either a recount or, you know, go to, go to paper ballots or something else. So it's, it seems remarkable, um, that in this case, you find something that goes straight to Raffensperger's initiatives office and reporting, and they do everything possible to cease investigation or stop any investigation into it. Um, yeah, keep in mind this, 2023-25 complaint was filed July 8th of 22. So here we are, December 19th. And again, it's a serious case, violations found. We're, it's a year and a half later um, that the, these, the investigation is finally complete. Six months, the investigation started in April. It took a long time just to get a case number on it, mm -hmm. uh, to be honest, because it went into a black hole. But the investigators obviously um, worked on it for six months. And now at the last minute, for whatever reason, it's being pulled and pushed till who knows whenever. I don't know if it'll appear at the next board meeting or not. 
Well, the next board meeting would be January sometime. Yes. At the yeah. earliest. Yeah. And they, they've not, I've reached out to them to ask me and I'm certainly going to try to ask at the meeting on Tuesday. You see the last comment there where it says, this is a serious case and the public uh, deserves to know why it was pulled from the agenda and what are the next steps on this 2325 case. Yep. I don't know if I'm going to get an answer or not, but I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to try to. Well, um, we looked at a couple other um, sort of ancillary things that uh, I thought might be interesting to show folks. And one of them is sometimes you see patterns. You know, you, you, you could make the argument that there's a pattern in all of these steps that have been followed largely by um, McGowan, but also by members of the state election board. But I, I thought it would be interesting to look at the dates involved in some of these things. So we, we recalled that uh, William Duffy, um, uh, they, there was an announcement on August 28th that Duffy would be leaving his role, and it was effective on September 1st, literally just a couple days later. When you examine the letter, though, it was dated July 18th. So I went back, took your dates and so forth, and it appears, at least based on the documents, that the, the sequence of events was this letter was written on July 18th. McGowan gave Duffy the, um, I think you named it the shutdown email on July 21st, three days later. Uh, Duffy's email then to you, which included a copy of McGowan's email to him, or a portion perhaps, was on August 6th. And then nearly a month later, they announced he's leaving. It just feels unusual to me. There feels like there may be a pattern there. I don't, I know we can't, as we sit here today, draw conclusions on this, but it is no, interesting to note. And then this, this notion of um, blocking certain information or failing to make certain information available came up again the very first week of November when Raffensperger was called before the uh, state ethics um, committee uh, to have a hearing on election concerns because people were um, raising these and they have been for many as almost as long as you have. And yet he fails to show up. And instead, who does he send? Charlene McGowan, along with another staff member and a representative of Dominion Voting Systems. Shocking to me. And then they called out, a couple of the senators called out in that hearing, you know, where in the heck is the secretary of state and it comes out later in the day that he, well, he felt to go into a rotary meeting in South Georgia was perhaps more important than the Senate hearing. You can't make this stuff up. So um, I just thought those were interesting sort of adjuncts to what we'd already talked about. So um, the, the uh, hearing with the state election board comes up this Tuesday. So we're literally two days away. Tell, tell people what they should be doing to aid in this effort, because this feels like an inflection point to me that needs yeah. to be supported properly. So let me leave that to you to describe how. I think the best thing, the one case is continued or uh, pushed to another time frame. So we'll obviously continue to follow up on that. But the BI case is to me uh, probably the most important case in on the docket and what I would recommend is if you all could, whoever is out there, if you guys could post the email addresses of each of the four board members and encourage them to take up that case and do an independent investigation 
of the code violations that we have filed in that complaint of March 21st, 22. And, you know, as you guys, as one of y'all said, if, if the board doesn't do this, then who else? I don't know. I don't know who else could hold that. Well, of course, this is a public hearing as well. People can actually go to it. They and uh, so we will uh, we will also post it's at the Georgia Capitol uh, and it's in, in the room where the state election board meets. Um, I believe in the last in the last meeting or one of the last meetings, there were so many people that showed up. They had to open a backup room, a overflow room, if you will, to to comply with fire code standards. My request to um, our listeners and to others that they know, have, have that happen again. Let's show the faces of Georgia to the people on the state election board and let them know that we know about this and that um, it is going to continue to receive um, attention until correctly dealt with. Um, does that make sense? Absolutely. Okay. Perfect. The other thing I wanted to mention was you're, you you will be joining um, one of our uh, one of our colleagues, um, uh, BKP Brian K Pritchard, tomorrow on his show as well, and so um, I would encourage folks to to learn more by tuning in there. It's also um, he's on uh, Voice of uh, Voice of Rural America. Uh, he also that that uh, the show BKP Politics airs on uh, CDM Media as well on Rumble. So uh, I bet we'll hear more from you in the coming 48 hours, even before we get to the hearing. So anything, any other messages before we close? Uh, thank you all for letting me get the information out there and we'll keep fighting for the truth and for some accountability when, when it is deemed necessary. You, thank you all very much for your time. Thank you for thank three you years all. of work and more coming, I bet. <laughs> Have a blessed Sunday. All right. You Take too. Care. Thank you, sir. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I think Georgians need to watch that interview again and listen to what's actually being said. And um, it's obvious to me that we don't have a a, uh, a a government that cares about free and fair elections. So not based on what we just heard. There seems yeah. to be serious, serious concerns. OK, let's move on. Uh, we're going to bring on Laura Loomer shortly. We had a good discussion with her, um, but I want to talk about one of our other sponsors is the wellness company. Uh, there's a lot of press out right now on the vaccines wanting to be given to children. Uh, they are still pushing them. There was an article out today where the CDC is lamenting that a very small amount of Americans are actually vaccinated uh, because I think Americans have figured out that the vaccines are not safe and effective. With that, uh, it's obvious they're going to continue pushing all this stuff and that there's a lot we don't know about the vaccines, although a lot's coming out as to the nefarious nature of them. Uh, but if you did take the vaccine or have children or family who did, you need to purify their blood. So go to the wellness company, twchealth.com, or twc.health forward slash CDM. I'm sorry, twc.health forward slash CDM, and check out their emergency wellness kit and also the spike support formula because this will allow you to purify your blood and those of your family. Natokinase is known to break down the spike protein. Essentially, what the vaccines do is force your body to make a toxin that it, uh, in, in, for a long time, we don't know how long, it could be forever. So uh, this will, uh, this breaks down that spike protein, which is a toxin which can cause cancers, turbo cancers, autoimmune disease, and a lot of other problems. And also 
There's a lot of talk, uh, predictive programming in the press on a possible cyber attack or EMP blast or something as the election approaches. So make sure you can protect your family with the emergency wellness kit, uh, which is also by the wellness company, twc.health forward slash CDM. Get one for each adult in your family. And if you use promo code CDM, you get a 10% discount on all of this. So please support the wellness company and it's a win-win because you're supporting free media and you're, you're protecting your family at the same time. So thank you. So we sat down with Laura Loomer. Uh, we pre-taped this, but I, I think it's a great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, let's go, Bill. So we had the chance uh, to sit down with Laura Loomer this week. Uh, I know she's very busy, so it took us some time, but she agreed to be on our schedule. Thank you for coming on, Laura. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So the big story I wanted to talk to you about is Jenna Ellis. I mean, it kind of, you know, every time one of these people is outed, there's like this, some kind of mental illness involved or what, what tell us about Jenna. What's, what, what did you find out? <laughs> well, we all know that Jenna Ellis, who's a, you know, just, I guess you could call her a serial grifter, serial liar, <laughs> presented herself as a constitutional lawyer. And now of course she's at the center of the Fulton County uh, Rico indictments against uh, the 19 individuals herself included, except Jenna Ellis made a deal with Fannie Willis and turned on president Trump and has agreed to testify against him after she raised over $216,000 from Trump supporters saying that uh, she intended to fight these charges. And so the thing about Jenna Ellis, right, is she's disloyal. This is a woman who originally was super anti-Trump in 2015 and 16. She trashed MAGA. She trashed Trump supporters. She said that we were low IQ. She called Trump supporters stupid. And then after the stolen election of 2020, she was somehow able to wiggle her way into Trump's inner circle and grift all this money off of President Trump. And now after saying that the election was stolen and uh, really building a large audience off of her claims that the election was stolen and uh, her fake support of President Trump, she's now anti-Trump supporting Ron DeSantis and has uh, been working with uh, Fannie, with Fannie Willis uh, against President Trump and the other individuals uh, who have been indicted in Fulton County. So, you know, this is a woman who is unethical. She lied about raising the money to fight the charges. And now uh, in this report that I've uncovered, I found that uh, it appears that her own annulment documents uh, from her first husband, who she kept a secret, uh, appear to be forged. And there was a handwriting expert by the name of uh, Wendy Carlson, who reviewed these uh, documents, and it was her professional opinion. Okay, and this is a this is a handwriting forensic handwriting specialist and expert who has been retained by the military, uh, by uh, you know politicians, and by uh, police departments, and you know she's a reputable forensic handwriting expert who has uh, been utilized for her services in multiple states, and she wrote this very detailed report saying that it was of her uh, utmost professional opinion that the signatures for uh, Shane Butler, who is uh, Jenna Ellis's first husband, as well as the uh, the actual notary themselves, uh, were forged. And so that would be a disqualifying factor if Jenna Ellis did, in fact, forge the signatures on these official annulment documents from her first marriage, uh, because she's she's a lawyer and not only is it a crime to forge a signature, but uh, it's grounds for disbarment if you are an attorney. And especially if you are, um, you're forging or fabricating legal documents as an officer of the court. One of the things that you had uh, called out in your report, I think, was to the, the sort of feeling that she 
you know, changes so dramatically from situation to situation. You know, I think one of uh, either it was her first husband or perhaps second uh, relayed uh, that, you know, the relationship was volatile, was uh, unpredictable or unstable. Well, she can't stay married for longer than three months. I mean, her, her second husband divorced her after two months and the first husband, that's another thing. She didn't even get the dates right uh, for the time that she, she married her first husband, said that uh, she married him on Christmas Eve. The documents show that it was uh, the 23rd of December and then the official ceremony was on Valentine's Day and then they were, they were getting divorced in May. So I don't know. There's something wrong with this woman because uh, she can't stay married for longer than she can't stay married for longer than three months, it seems. And I think that that's a testament to her character as opposed to the men she's married, because, yeah, maybe if it's like a one time thing, you could say, oh, it didn't work out. And, you know, there'd be some plausible deniability about whether or not, you know, the guy was to blame or she was to blame. Who knows? Right. Sometimes people do crazy things. They get married. Right. People, people, um, People get in arranged marriages and then they realize, oh, wow, what have I done with my life, right? People go to Vegas and get hitched. Crazy things have happened. But when it happens multiple times, right, I feel like you kind of have to start uh, looking at this pattern recognition and thinking to yourself, okay, what's wrong with Jenna Ellis? What is wrong with Jenna Ellis that <laughs> both of her husbands left her after two months? So yeah. how do you think this impacts the, the, the all the 19 defendants and the whole clown show going on in the Georgia courts. Well, I think that she should be disqualified as a witness because if these documents uh, are valid and they are real documents, this is a real document from Wendy Carlson. But if in fact her analysis is correct and Jenna Ellis did forge these documents for the annulment and you can see the evidence yourself in the report with all the screenshots, then that should disqualify her um, as as a witness against President Trump. Because how can she testify against him? How could anybody take this woman's word if she's forging documents? Yeah, yeah, agreed. the The other thing is it goes back to these cases. Is her actions even within the cases have been odd? I guess is the way to put it. Let me. Uh, I'm I'm going to share something. So when she was booked, here was her mugshot. And if you look at the other defendants. You know, there's a couple that are trying to put on a, a happy face, but she she actually looks glib about this whole thing. Like, I own you guys. And, yeah, and it looks and, like, and it also looks like she had her makeup professionally done beforehand too. Yeah. You know, like uh, she yeah. wanted to smile, put on a show. Yeah, yeah, it looks all put together. Like, wow, everything's under control. And yet, you you look at the picture and uh, and video of her um, reading her apology, if you will. And here's this, you know, oh, my gosh, the world's coming apart. Tears, literally tears coming out of her eyes and everything else. It's kind of like, what in the devil? Is this two different people or is this what changed here? You know, it seems yeah, well, very odd. She's an opportunist and uh, she's putting on a show. And I wouldn't even be surprised if Fannie Willis herself wrote that little apology that she read in front of the court. I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, clearly she... Uh, excuse me she um she lied about wanting to fight these charges okay and she should have to give back the money she should be removed as a witness and uh she should be forever condemned by maga people shouldn't have yeah. sympathy for this woman and probably shouldn't be operating as an attorney for ever <laughs> yeah exactly um it it is it is remarkable i'm hoping that uh, we don't find similar you know strangeness in other defendants uh, as we go forward 
Let's um, switch gears. Well, go ahead, Bill. Did you have another no, question? No, that's, that's fine. I was I was thinking down the same path. Go right so ahead. let's let's talk Ukraine. Another uh, female uh, opportunist, Nikki Haley. Uh, <laughs> talk to us about yeah. what you found on the, the her main donor. Well, you know, I've been exposing Nikki Haley. I've been exposing her uh, her extramarital affairs, which are also documented in affidavits. This is not hearsay. This is not a rumor. These are affidavits signed by two men who say that they had an affair with Nikki Haley when uh, this was like uh, 13 years into her marriage. And so, you know, she cheats on her husband. Uh, you can read the affidavits. I published them on my website. Uh, but um, but no, Nikki Haley's top donor right now to her presidential campaign is a Ukrainian billionaire who also happens to be one of Zelensky's uh, key allies and donors. Uh, his name is Jan Cohen. And so why is Nikki Haley so pro-war? Why is it that uh, Nikki Haley is such a warmonger? Well, look at who her, her biggest donor is. Her biggest donor is a, is a Zelensky operative, a Zelensky donor. And uh, as we just saw yesterday, right, uh, Zelensky came to, uh, came to Washington, D.C. See this week the uh, the entire town was locked down, and then they even uh, strong-armed Republicans into appro- approving and voting in favor of another six hundred million dollars for Ukraine yesterday when they signed uh, well when they passed the the NDAA the defense bill that also uh, completely strips us of our Fourth Amendment rights uh, by extending FISA. So. Uh, there you have it, right? We know that uh, Nikki Haley wants to dox everybody on social media, so she's not going to have any problem with FISA. And we know that um, this woman has never, uh, never seen a war she didn't like. It's it's astounding um, that she would propose that people have to identify themselves and and so forth and register, if you will, to be able to post on social media when she's not even using her given name. You know, her her real name is Nimrata Rundaha a Runda. Awa, uh, and it's it's like what, you know? How would you possibly propose this for others when you're not even going by based on the name you were given? It well, seems she's the, she's the female version of the Ron of Ron DeSantis because Ron wanted all you know the, his disciples down in Florida wanted all journalists and bloggers to register if they were you know anti-governor. So it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly right. <laughs> That's exactly what Ron DeSantis wanted to do. It's like a dictator bill, right? And then he tried yeah. to say, oh, well, after people freaked out about it and they found out uh, what he was going to do, I was one of the, I think I was the first person to really blow this up when it happened and people couldn't believe it. And they thought, oh, you're exaggerating. No, this is real. Then he tried to pretend like he didn't know the legislator who proposed the bill and goes, oh, well, you know, legislators use my name all the time. Meanwhile, this guy was literally endorsed by Ron DeSantis, right? So that's how Ron DeSantis is. And now, of course, he's under uh, investigation as well because, uh, well, you have uh, the uh, election chief uh, from the election crime office. And now we find out that he actually died in, inside of Ron DeSantis's office. And there's a real cover up there. They didn't give the guy an autopsy. His name's Peter Antonacci. I had Christopher Gleason on my show a couple weeks ago to uh, go through this report. And now you have FDLE employees who uh, who left, who uh, some of them were fired, who are now speaking out. They're trying to be whistleblowers to talk about all the corruption at the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and how Ron DeSantis has been utilizing FDLE, FDLE resources, including uh, helicopters, uh, for the sake of uh, campaigning, which is a violation. You're not allowed to be mixing your official gubernatorial resources as an office uh, staff or materials with a presidential campaign. Speaking of Ukraine, let's talk about uh, the big guy. Uh, What is, uh, there's, it's been out in the social media that uh, Zelensky may have a property in Florida. I know you can't verify that, but uh, would that surprise you at all? 
Well, there's been some reports uh, and some documents circulating that suggest that Zelensky is going to be renting a, like seasonally at least, a $22 million mansion in Vero Beach. And so people, there hasn't been a, a you know a full-blown confirmation, uh, but there are some documents that were released online and uh, the talk of the town in uh, South Florida is that uh, Zelensky is uh, going to be vacationing here. So we'll see. I'm sure we'll find out sooner rather than later because that's uh, not going to be kept secret for long if it is in fact the case. Uh, but uh, the town that they mentioned, Vero Beach, very specifically, it's a very small, quaint beach town. And so I think it's interesting that that was the town mentioned because you could have said Miami, you could have said Tampa, you could have said Orlando. But, uh, you know, they were very specific by saying Vero. So who knows? We will see. I haven't been able to confirm it. I saw the reports uh, floating around online and certainly caught my attention. But we'll we will see what happens. Bill, or got there were else? some. Yeah, there was a picture of uh, Johnson spending a little bit of time uh, with uh, past speaker of the House, uh, Ryan. Ryan. What what's your read there? Well, you know, why is Paul Ryan even in the Congress right now? He he retired. What's he doing there? Why is he there right as Republicans are talking about FISA? We already we already know that FISA was used to spy on President Trump illegally. And we know that Paul Ryan doesn't want Donald Trump to be the uh, the nominee. He just endorsed Nikki Haley after endorsing Ron DeSantis. And then right before they take the vote on whether or not they're going to pass the NDAA, even though it has the extension of FISA on, you have Paul Ryan meeting with uh, Mike Johnson. It's very concerning to me. It's very concerning, especially because we now only have a one-seat majority in Congress, uh, thanks to people like Bill Johnson and, and McCarthy retiring early, and then the Republicans ousting of George Santos. All it's going to take is one more Republican seat, whether you have some of these geriatrics falling over the holidays, who knows, right? I mean, we have members of Congress in the Senate literally going to work to vote one day, and then we we hear a news story at 5 o'clock in the morning, like we saw with Dianne Feinstein. She showed up to work the day pr uh, prior to vote, and then boom, she's dead, right? So you never know. Like, some of these people are 100 years old, and they're sitting in Congress every day. Uh, walking around with life alert necklaces and like the guy I ran against Daniel Webster who literally wore a life alert when I was running against him it takes one one of these geriatrics croaks between now and the new year or sometime between now and the end of 2024 and I see you laughing but I'm telling you it is it's not even a laughing matter this is really serious it, all it's going to take is one of the geriatrics in Congress to croak, whether they have a heart attack or a stroke or they die in their sleep. I don't know. And that's it. We're going to have Speaker Hakeem Jeffries. People better take this very seriously. Well, isn't it interesting, too, that they just pick up uh, in the last couple of days the uh, the notion of an impeachment inquiry. And all of a sudden, we see the majority starting to notch down one by one. By because one. they just want to base, they want to make uh, Republicans feel like they're doing something so that when somebody does die or something does happen, maybe it's a car accident or maybe another scandal, right? It, they can say, oh, well, we tried. It's not our fault. The Democrats took control of the House. How do you expect us to have an impeachment inquiry? How do you expect us to defund the DOJ and, and uh, you know, not give money to the FBI? Well, even when Republicans had control, right, just last week, they, uh, they voted against a measure that would have stripped the FBI of the $300 million of funding that they wanted to expand their headquarter office. So what do we really get when we have a Republican majority? Nothing. 
So, you know, you might as well just let the Democrats take back control of the House because, you know what, it's not going to be any different. You're not going to see anything different because the Republicans in the Senate and the Republicans in uh, in the House of Representatives all voted with the Democrats. And even when we have the majority, we can't seem to get a victory. We can't seem to get a win. So that's probably the toughest lesson, I think, that uh, I'll call it Republicans, conservatives, real ones, have had to learn this past, what, year or two. Yeah. Is you can't count on something just because it's red or because there's an R next to it. You have to look at track record you have to look at actions you have to look at statements absolutely last question laura uh what what are your thoughts on the election i mean uh, a lot of rumors floating around i mean they they barred trump from exiting nato today so they're obviously worried the other side is what are your thoughts on are we going to have an election what it's going to look like is there going to something happen prior to that because that's the rumor right well, look, I think that uh, there's I had a I had Cash Patel on my show last night and we were talking about uh, the likelihood of a uh, another Chinese cyber attack. We saw that uh, Chinese hackers hacked into U.S. infrastructure this week. Uh, you know, several months ago, we saw these uh, Chinese spy balloons. OK, all it's going to take is for a cyber attack or some type of EMP and you're going to have mass chaos and perhaps you're not even going to have an election. So, yeah, they could they could really interfere in our elections with another cyber attack or an EMP or some type of, uh, you know, massive terrorist attack. And we see that the FBI director uh, came out and said that the terror threat in this country has never been higher, uh, even including the time around 9-11. He said that uh, there's active Hamas and Hezbollah terror cells. And um, obviously, the FBI wants you to think that uh, MAGA conservatives are the biggest terror threat in this country. Uh, but now they're even saying that uh, international terror threats because of our wide open border uh, are at the highest levels they've seen. And so there's a lot of things that could impact our election. You now have uh, Democrats like Robert Kagan, who's married to Victoria Newland at the State Department, uh, the queen of color revolution, speaking of Ukraine, writing and, and uh, basically green lighting uh, opinion pieces in the Washington Post for, you know, how to assassinate Donald Trump. And you have business insiders saying things like, oh, well, if Donald Trump were to die before the 2024 election, here's what would happen. So they're already trying to plant the seed and they know that, you know, there was a Bloomberg report released yesterday that showed that Donald Trump is currently four to six points up in every single key swing state beating Joe Biden. So what are they going to do? What what are they going to do if jailing him, indicting him and lying about him and uh, putting him on trial doesn't work? I honestly think they're going to try to kill him. I think that uh, I think that assassination is something that we need to start talking about because we need to be prepared. And the reality is, is we've seen the rhetoric uh, intensify. And if the Democrats are talking about assassination, then we need to talk about it as well. We need to talk about how we're going to counter it because they did this when he was elected in 2016. Okay, we saw that they had that New York City Shakespeare in the Park play that I got arrested for for crashing. Remember that? And uh, they were trying to incite uh, violence and I call it assassination porn. And now you have a senior State Department official, their spouse, uh, putting assassination porn out in one of the most well-known and well-funded leftist publications in the entire country. CIA mouthpiece, essentially. Yeah. And, and, so there you and go. we know that if anybody's going to assassinate Donald Trump, well, who's who's assassinated presidents in the past, right? Exactly. Our own CIA, our own intelligence agencies. Even RFK said that he yeah. believes his his uh, you know his uncle was assassinated uh, by the CIA. So. This isn't a conspiracy theory. This is not a conspiracy theory. And you already have, 
you know, State Department's officials now uh, using their husbands and using their spouses as the mouthpiece to voice uh, or encourage uh, in a, an assassination attempt. I think that we need to take it very seriously. There's one more interesting trend we spotted, too, in the polls, and that is, uh, you rightly said, you know, Trump appears to be leading Biden in the majority of certainly swing states and, and many of the others um, by a few by a few percentage points. There's been one or one or two polls that came out that showed Nikki Haley head to head with Biden, actually yeah, right. beating him by more. <laughs> yet in the Republican nomination, you know, she's, I think, still down in the 12 to 10 point range. Look, they're so desperate. They're so desperate because they know that Nikki Haley is like a Democrat, right? This is a woman who uh, is willing to compromise on her so-called conservative values. She has no standards at all. And uh, that is why you now have Democrats backing her. So, of course, they're going to say that they're going to manipulate the polls because Hillary Clinton's donors and uh, Democrat Party mega donors like Reed Hoffman and Jamie Dimon, who gave a million dollars to the SPLC, uh, Reed Hoffman, OK, the uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, pedophile enabling uh, LinkedIn uh, co-founder who essentially uh, bankrolled the legal defense for Jean Carroll, who falsely accused Donald Trump of rape. OK, these are the people that are now giving Nikki Haley tons of money. Reed Hoffman just gave Nikki Haley a quarter of a million dollars and he was palling around with Jeffrey Epstein at Epstein Island after Jeffrey Epstein was convicted. OK, these are sick people. These are really sick people who are supporting Nikki Haley. These are not Republicans. These are Democrats. And Democrats aren't donating to Donald Trump. They're donating to Nikki Haley. Yeah, it, there it is. It appears that they're trying to set um, set uh, uh, Trump up, even if he were to win, as uh, sort of Biden's best hope, if you will, which which is crazy, of course. Um, but it, they're trying to find anything they can. The, the word here uh, in Georgia is and we can see the actions taking place to do this. They have to. It isn't about having somebody else win. It's about stopping Trump. They have to stop Trump. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do. Anything else, Laura, you want to get out? Uh, I just recently launched my own news aggregation site. It's called The Luma Report. And so people want to read my reports, they can go to The Luma Report. But uh, also, we're going to be featuring a lot of your reports there as well. And so uh, we're just at, it's aggregating America First News uh, from independent journalists. And so I encourage people to check out the Luma Report and also uh, be sure that you're following me on X and True Social, Gab and Getter at Laura Loomer. And then follow me on Rumble as well at Laura Loomer because I have my show, Loomer Unleashed, every uh, Tuesday and Thursday from, well, at 8 p.m. Eastern. And maybe we'll get you guys on the show sometime as well because you're always breaking so many big stories. Excellent. Thanks, Laura. And you were going to send me that point of contact for the Luma report. So yeah, I'll connect you guys via text. Uh huh. Excellent. Thanks a lot. Take care. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Laura's always great. Fantastic energy, fantastic uh, investigative skills. So uh, I cannot believe how many things that she can uh, uncover, investigate and break in a, in a daily, weekly basis. It's amazing. She, yeah, it is amazing. She's obviously I, got some good sources. As we were sitting there listening to that, I came up with a good idea. What's that? A combined voting mechanism and life alert necklace for, <laughs> for members of Congress. It it could have, you know, uh, yay, nay, and help. <laughs> I voted and I can't get up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're not supposed to have this much fun kicking the deep state in the rear end, are we? No. Oh, um, so uh, moving along because we're running along here. So yep. 
there's a lot of press out there that they're trying to take away our beef. Uh, they want you to eat bugs. And uh, we are fighting against that. And one way of doing that is a relationship we have with our cattleman in Nebraska who provides non-mRNA beef uh, that you can feel really good about uh, with your family is Glade Miller-Smith, familyfarmbeefbox.com. You get fantastic, delicious beef delivered on a regular basis to your house, frozen and multiple cuts. Uh, check out familyfarmbeefbox.com. Bill, run an ad real quick. Yeah, So that's familyfarmbeefbox.com. Thank you for supporting Glade and to help support us, free media and uh, the Republic in the long run. So we have, uh, you know, we have papers across the country and we're in Florida, Georgia, Connecticut, New York, Montana, Maryland, Colorado, more coming, military sites, et cetera. But one thing we found across, one theme we have found across the nation as we're dealing with all of these different issues statewide is, the, is really the issues inside the GOP itself and a lot of the officials who are uh, really not acting for the future of the Republic or for uh, what's best for the country, but really for their own agendas. And I wanted to bring on somebody from Connecticut because our Connecticut paper, ConnecticutSentinel.com, that's the C-C-I-N-T-N-T-E-N-A-L, T-I-N-A-L, ConnecticutSentinel.com, has really uh, woken up Connecticut and we're getting a lot of good feedback. And Amy Borden, can you bring Amy in, please? Yep. Amy, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. So... I wanted to bring you on because you've experienced some of the things with the GOP uh, in Connecticut that we've seen in Georgia and Florida and elsewhere. Tell us about uh, what you've seen in your interactions with the, the party in Connecticut. So it's interesting um, here in Connecticut, there seems to be instead of a two party system, the conservatives here pretty much call it the uni party uh, because we have such a deep, um, you know, they, the CTGOP would like to call it purple, but we are a deep, deep blue state and our CTGOP can't even acknowledge how blue we've become. So they use this moniker of being a purple or a deep purple state. And that is pretty much their assessment of the party here in Connecticut. And um, I think they're off the mark because I think we have fallen far, far deeper into socialistic values and even communistic values here in Connecticut. And Republicanism is becoming um, something that a lot of people are ashamed of. Um, they, you know, of course, Trump takes the blame for a lot of things, but you'll hear that Trump ruined the party for Connecticut. Um, and anytime he's on the ballot, it makes the CT GOP leave a bad taste in people's mouths so they don't want to vote, they don't want to come out. Um, so that's kind of like the sentiment of the party here. My experience with the uh, chairman, Ben Proto, it has been kind of vanilla. You know, uh, he doesn't excite me. Um, he definitely is the chair of the uni party, if you ask me. 
the overlap for which the Republican dele uh, candidates that we put forward on the ballot and that that we and I say we as a party as a as a Republican Party GOP um, donor and and former supporter, um, you know we we're not thrilled with the candidates that get put on the ballot. They're very Democratic. Um, there's there's this theory that there's this overlap between the Republicans or the rhinos, if you will, um, and the Democrat Party, where there's this sweet spot where if you emulate just enough of what the Democrat Party runs on and represents and what they stand for, um, you'll capture a certain percent of the moderate Democrat and the and the independent and unaffiliated vote. And so we've pretty much lost our true north. We've lost our way in Connecticut as a as a whole, as a party as a whole. I think the conservative movement is really truly the ones keeping republicanism alive in Connecticut. Well, I, I was going to ask you that you you've got the party officials which you know we've seen that everywhere. We just don't get Trump on the ballot and you know just be Democrat enough and you'll put off some of the vote. And we saw in Westport and other places that wasn't the case at all. But in, in Greenwich, we, they flipped Republicans. So my question is, you have the party and then you have the grassroots. I, I spend some time in Connecticut. With the, we have a paper there. And it seems to me that the grassroots are a lot more red than people actually think. What, what are your thoughts on that? It's definitely as of late, the grassroots movements that have been um, very successful in campaigning against the things that they don't want or the things that they do want, they are red in values. They are more conservative, right leaning, common sense, um, you know, good versus evil, all of that stuff wrapped up into one. Um, they come forward and they're standing for things like basic constitutional rights, uh, mm -hmm. basic under, you know, understanding send your children to school. It should be a place where they're there to learn wholesome information, not necessarily be taught uh, from books that have, you know, two children performing fellatio in them. A lot of the common sense values that Americans embody has drawn out people from all different parties to grassroots single issue voter movements or voting blocks. And people like myself went out and um, hunted and gathered these people together and created groups and created events and um, things like that along campaign trails to, to mobilize these groups and to steer them towards the proper candidates to vote for in order to see the change that they want in the community. And it was completely disregarded by the CTGOP. Well, it seems like the party in Connecticut is similar in Georgia and other places where they just want to keep their power, not necessarily wanting to do what's right for the country and for the state and for those who espouse, you know, as you say, conservative values and actually conserve something in the long run. Um, right. So w what else do you want our people to know about what's happening? And this is a Georgia audience, but we really have a global audience also. What's going on? What else is going on in Connecticut you want people to know about? Um, I just, I'm not sure how involved people are down in uh, Georgia with uh, Republican town committees or whatever the local governance that you have that um, governs your town councils, your board of ed, uh, you know, zoning, zoning and appeals, things like that. Mm -hmm. It's really important for people to Google search or DuckDuckGo, 
your local Republican Party, find out their website, find out the chairman, go to the uh, meetings, meet people. A lot of the times on meeting, a lot of these people outside of RTC meetings for a cup of coffee, because then you can actually get the real lowdown on what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, but the monthly meetings are important to attend and you have to make sure that you're picking and choosing candidates that either respond to the pressure that you're putting on them or that flat out support your group. Otherwise, I, I don't know what to say except make them earn your vote, whether that's abstaining, whether that's choosing another candidate that's willing to work with you. But right now, voting party line does not necessarily mean you're, you're voting for Republican values. Completely agreed. Amy, thanks. We'll have you back on because we want to really make a focus in Connecticut and other states where we have a ground game going forward. So thanks for taking time out on a Sunday. And thanks for being thanks patient, for, for getting on the show and, and, being, uh, and being there when we ask. Thanks a lot. It was worth the wait. Have a great holiday, everyone. Take care, Amy. So what else do we got, Bill? Well, let's... I'm sorry. The Connecticut Sentinel has really made a big impact in Connecticut, and we're going to likely have a show in Connecticut as well, and, and there's just a lot to be done there. So even though people say it's a communist state, which it probably is one of the most communist infiltrated states in the country, CDM is running to the sound of the guns, and we're going to continue doing that as far as going where the fight is and where the problems are and trying to provide free media. So go ahead, Bill. So uh, I think we're about done for today, but coming up this week, we're going to have more on uh, an initiative that uh, that raised its ugly head again, ranked choice voting. Uh, this one's under another name again, instant, uh, instant runoff of voting. And uh, seems to be led by an organization that uh, we haven't seen uh, as much recently, uh, Eternal Vigilance Action. And uh, we won't go into the details now, but we're going to be talking about uh, that initiative and the people that they say are supporting them from the legislators um, uh, later on in the week. We'll also be talking about, you know, we're starting the real cycles now and we're starting to see funding mechanisms uh, emerge for uh, candidates, some, we hope, very good candidates in uh, the type of funding that will help the right people get into office. So we'll have more on that and uh, probably a lot more on the hearing coming up on Tuesday. Again, we want to encourage folks to, uh, to, if they can, attend. Um, we will have an article out this evening in the Georgia uh, record that will uh, confirm the, the address and the uh, if you can't go, then at least uh, get an email or a call into the state election uh, board members and encourage them to do the right thing when it comes to this investigation. If there is evidence of uh, need for an investigation into Raffensperger and what he's been telling people, encourage them to follow through with that. So we'll have more on all of that this week, I bet. So real quick, a plug for History of Books and our joint venture with them, uh, Vindicta Publishing. If you're looking for Christmas gifts for people who have everything, uh, my book, uh, Bill, if you could throw that up, the uh, Paying the Price, the Untold Story of the Iranian Resistance is, is fantastic. It's, a, it it's is. a book that you will surprise you. And I guarantee you, you probably don't know what this group is about and what they've been doing and what they're trying to do in Iran. Uh, take that one down real quick, Bill. There's another uh, book is really interesting that you can pre-order. I'm not sure it's available for Christmas, but um, if you want to get a gift coming soon, this is a, a really 
fantastic book on Princess Anastasia. If you have an interest in Russian affairs or Russian history or Slavic history, which really impacts uh, the U.S. as well, um, this one is coming in, in, in another great choice. And also Christine Dolan's book, uh, which is called Shattered Innocence, is also coming out in the spring. So please check out History of Books. They have children's books. They have everything. But it's a, it's a censor-free publishing house, and we're glad to be part, partnered with them. All right, Bill, I think that's it. You can take us out. Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Todd.